Welcome to Radio BX, the podcast of the Building Energy Exchange, where we discuss sustainability and energy efficiency in the built environment. In the Field Notes series of Radio BX, our Executive Director, Richard Yancey, talks with industry leaders that have played a central role in the development of the Building Energy Exchange. A natural extension of our core mission to foster dialogue among the entire community that impacts the performance of buildings, Radio BX is made possible through the generous support of our 2021 sponsor, National Grid. So stay engaged and join the conversation each month with some of the most compelling people in our field. Welcome to Radio BX, a production of the Building Energy Exchange. It's Tuesday, February 9th, and my name is Richard Yancey, BX's founding executive director. This morning, as part of celebrating our extended 10-year anniversary, we're kicking off a new Radio BX series called Field Notes, where I will be borrowing the mic from my colleague, Yatza Frank, to catch up with past board members and partners who were instrumental in helping us to launch and build the Building Energy Exchange. So to kick off this series, there is no one I would rather speak to than my guest this morning or this afternoon, depending on what part of the country you're in, Ashok Gupta, Senior Energy Economist at the Natural Resources Defense Council and founding board member, past chair, and emeritus director of the Building Energy Exchange. Ashok is one of the most strategic and brilliant thinkers I've ever met on how to affect meaningful change to solve the climate crisis. Hi, Ashok. Welcome. Hey, Richard. How are you? Good to see you. I'm good. Welcome to Radio BX. Where do we find you this afternoon? I am at home in Kansas City where we've had some snow and it's super cold here. So this is where we've moved uh, back in 2012, so eight or nine years ago now. So dare I ask, have you recovered from Sunday's uh, <laughs> Super Bowl? <laughs> well, when your team loses, my view of the world is you don't think about it, you move on because <laughs> it is too depressing to think about. So yes, I am on to the next phase of all the things I need to get done. And yes, it was uh, good to be in a Super Bowl two years in a row, but yes, it was definitely a disappointing game. So uh, first off, a little housekeeping, congratulations on receiving the 2020 ACEEE Champion of Energy Efficiency Lifetime Achievement Award. I think that's like the Nobel Prize <laughs> in energy efficiency. So congratulations. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I think that what they gave it to me for was really all the brilliant people that I have worked with over those 30 years at NRDC and even before. And it was all those interns and all the other people that I've, you know, really I'm proud of who really made that happen. So, uh, and it calls that out. I mean, it was really the team that does the work, as you know. Yeah. I think they said a lifetime of work advancing energy efficiency in New York State, Missouri, and elsewhere, and for his many efforts mentoring a new generation of energy efficiency leaders. Um, so uh, this afternoon, I thought we could take this discussion in three parts because you've had such a kind of varied and interesting and effective career. Um, one part talking maybe on the kind of more policies and initiatives side. And then another part talking about uh, all the work you've been doing kind of in institution building and mentoring. Uh, and then lastly, maybe uh, we could catch up on what you're doing in the Midwest, which is a real shift from all the work you've done uh, previously in the Northeast. But before we launch into part one, I did wanna ask, 
a little bit about how you got to energy efficiency and policy. I, you know, I noticed that at Georgetown, you majored in mathematics and physics, and it's not necessarily a direct straight line from physics to you know, energy economists. So I'm curious about what led you into the field. Well, the short bio is partially the time frame, and so I am 67 years old. So when I was in college in the early 70s, uh, first energy crisis happened. All the craziness that was going on in Washington D.C. when I was in D.C. public schools from 68 to 71, and that at Georgetown, and then American was really all about, uh, for me, uh, policy and all the issues. First Earth Day. Uh, the debates that were going on, obviously Vietnam, civil rights, everything was happening in my world at that point. So uh, science was just a means of really figuring out what I wanted to do. And it was just something I was good at. So majoring in physics and math was just a, a skill set that I could then apply. Uh, and then going to graduate school in economics was just part of that journey as well. So it was really about figuring out that how to do policy, how to do the politics, and science and e math and economics were tools that would help me do it. And just real quickly, people, a lot of people don't probably know it, but I basically after that went into teaching and taught high school for seven or eight years. And that's what really gave me my advocacy skill set also in terms of communications, because people won't believe this now given how much I talk, but all in high school and college, I probably never once raised my hand to ask a single question. <laughs> that was not me. But when I got into teaching and got into advocacy, that's when I found my voice. So teaching was a very important part of what I did after I studied. You taught high school? What subjects did you teach? Math and science. They always needed math and science teachers. So I taught math and science. But I was also, when I taught at the UN school, was teaching the International Baccalaureate Program. So they had... I could teach economics, I could teach theory of knowledge, they let me teach whatever. And then when I was teaching at an English school on the Upper West Side in Manhattan, we taught O-levels and A-levels there. And I was able to even develop a, a course, an IB course in environmental studies. So having never studied environmental science, I really learned it by teaching it. It was a two-year course every day for juniors and seniors as a science alternative. So yeah, so the teaching part people don't know about, but that was a very important part in my late 20s uh, to really develop my skill set. Even though I always knew I wanted to do policy, but teaching was a nice detour. It was also the place where I met my wife, who is an artist. And when she was the art teacher, when we first met in D.C. and we moved to New York. <laughs> uh, professorial romance. Yeah. Uh, so talking a little bit about um, the work you've done, and especially on the policy side and the initiative side, it seems to have really stretched the full gambit um, starting back in terms of some of the work around the systems benefit charge and energy efficiency portfolio standards. And, and I think the regional greenhouse gas initiative, which I don't know that at least a lot of the younger folk here understand the kind of context of some of those um, earlier projects and then how they led into some of the more kind of recent work around buildings and cities? Yeah, I mean, the quick way to think about it, I mean, I got hired at NRDC in 91, 30 years ago, to work on energy efficiency. Uh, NRDC's California office had been doing a lot of the work on 
efficiency at that point and trying to work with utilities to have them invest in efficiency instead of building a lot of new power plants. And back then it was actually nuclear plants were big things that people had on their portfolio. And the idea was to do demand side management as an alternative to building new generation. So started working with Con Ed, trying to get utility efficiency programs up and running in New York, uh, much like they were doing in California and elsewhere. So that's where it started. Uh, then deregulation happened. The power, uh, power sector was, you know, Con Ed had to sell off all its generation. So system benefits charge became the tool and the way to keep doing energy efficiency. And in New York, we brought in NYSERDA to implement those efficiency programs. And that's, you know, we've moved from demand side management by utilities to system benefits charge programs by NYSERDA. And then over time, you know, I just start adding renewables, so the renewable portfolio standard, climate became an issue. How do we regulate carbon and efficiency and renewables were a means to reducing carbon emissions. And under Governor Pataki, the whole Reggie program was developed. Uh, the idea was originally to have New York do its carbon standard, but the governor's office clearly wanted to do something regional. So, you know, creatively, we came up with the regional greenhouse gas initiative. That's like, who knew that that would stay, stay as the name forever? So, yeah, so all these things led one to the other. And we had a great team of folks at NRDC. I mean, it was, you know, it was Kit Kennedy and Dale Brick and Nathaniel Green and now Donna. So it's always, you know, working on these New York, Jackson Morris, working on these New York uh, issues. And obviously we worked throughout the Northeast as well, but New York became the place to kind of roll out these various efforts. And I should add one more quick thing. I mean, obviously the New York City efforts were going in parallel, especially after Mayor Bloomberg came in. And so Plan YC and all the work that was being done by uh, Gil when he was at the city before he moved to NYPA were all happening in parallel at the same time. That's Gil Quinones. Gil Quinones. So it's kind of all these big regional level efforts around power generation, power plants. Um, when did the shift or when did the buildings and specifically cities come into importance, do you think? Again, for me and NRDC, energy efficiency in buildings were always the key component. The renewables were the add-on, actually. And then climate became such an issue. And the question was, you know, the combination of efficiency and renewables. But efficiency in buildings were always key. And when NRDC, you know, built out its 40 West 20th space, we were one of the first in the modern green building movement to build out our top four floors on 40 West 20th to be both efficient and have very high indoor air quality. And this was before LEED and before USGBC came about. So we were part of that journey around showing the way in terms of what could be done on building efficiency. And New York State even had its green building tax credit program we did with Brebney. We did you know, other things working with the Dursts and so on, So the and Battery Park City. So there was a whole effort in terms of how efficiency in green buildings kind of took off and NRDC was involved in that journey. So it was, for us, efficiency and buildings were always part of the work we did. And it was renewables and climate that were added over time to the work that was done and obviously transportation as well. So it was, uh, it was definitely that journey. And so when Plan YC was being worked on and Mayor Bloomberg was really gonna move forward with a climate initiative, we knew buildings and efficiency had to be part of that. And that is where also, you know, building energy exchange and NYSEEC 
came out of the implementation of Plan YC. And that was about helping building owners actually achieve many of the policies that were being put forward by the city of New York. So the city-state piece, we always knew we had to do the state policy work, but we knew that when we had the opportunity to have the city lead on these things, it was definitely where we needed to put a lot of effort. And again, not everybody probably knows this, but I actually worked at the city of New York just before I came to NRDC. So I was there for two and a half years and kind of knew what the city had the potential to do, but hadn't done. And therefore, when there was the opportunity to do so, we jumped on it. And you were part of the Bloomberg administration's uh, sustainability advisory board and energy policy task force. Where did the kind of genesis of the Greener Greater Buildings Plan you know, which had a lot of people involved, a lot of fingerprints on that, but obviously um, come from, because it seems like in terms of a lot of the things that followed, that was foundational and allowed for a lot of these other policies, initiatives, and laws to happen. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, what happened was Mayor Bloomberg decided we were going to do a Plan YC. Dan Dockroff was put in charge. Rit Agarwala was hired. Laurie Kerr was working with RIT. So Plan YC was written, and then the idea was to implement Plan YC's recommendations on buildings and how to achieve the building and efficiency part of the Plan YC. And that's where the policies came from. So then there was the effort of working with the city council to do all of the benchmarking, audit, retrocommissioning, lighting improvements, and so on. That package came out of Plan YC, and it was really, uh, you know, the city's staffing versus all the advocates on the outside working to do that. And that, of course, then led, of course, to the city energy project and taking those policies that New York City had done to 10 cities and then 20 cities around the country. But that's the next chapter. But yeah, the New York City piece came out of Plan YC, and it was really Red and Lori who were working at the city. I'm sure there were many others, but those two, of course, were leading that effort. And Lori, of course, came on to help launch the Building Energy Exchange also at the same time. Yeah. So shifting gears just a little bit in terms of the kind of ecosystem and the institution building, because I think, um, you know, what one of the things I've always been impressed, Ashok, in speaking with you about kind of st- strategically in general is you tend to think multidimensionally. Uh, and and I think that's clear in the things you've spent your time on in your career, that you've been involved at the table in just an incredible amount of policy work on the one hand, but then you've spent a lot of your time on helping create new nonprofits, new organizations, institutional building, um, and kind of understanding that it's not just creating really smart policies and laws, but it's how do you make them successful? Like what are the resources and the carrots and the ecosystems uh, in the coalitions that are required to affect kind of real change other than just, you know, a win on the policy front? Um, you know, and I, I kind of looked through and, and just the list is not short of the organizations you've been involved in. Urban Green Council, you know, New York City's USGBC chapter, you know, I think that went from one or two people to whatever it is now, 15 or 20. Of course, our organization, the Building Energy Exchange, uh, you and Lori and Akut Kerr and a couple other people were, you know, instrumental in, in launching that effort. Um, the Hudson River Foundation, Clean Air, Cool Planet, Citizens Union, Low Impact Hydropower Institute, 
the New York City Energy Efficiency Corporation, NYSEEC. Um, so I'd be really interested in you talking a little bit about that relationship um, between policy and kind of organizations. Well, first of all, NRDC is really good at this and NRDC colleagues, I once surveyed the energy program to see how many boards my colleagues were on. We were on over a hundred boards uh, because I think it's a very important part of transforming and creating change that you do more than policy development. NRDC always knows that you have to implement the policies and implementing the policies and scaling up the solutions, even when you get the policy in place is so important. So it's really about how do we get the outcomes we want? And the policy piece is one, one very important part of it. But for markets and financing and solutions and scaling up piece, you need to be engaged and you need to do it with lots of organizations. Uh, so when you talk about the ecosystem, you really need to partner and you really need to bring your resources as an RDC to help start organizations, support organizations. And so this is something, you know, continue to do. I'm, you know, I'm on the board of Alliance to Save Energy and Smart Growth America and now, and, you know, I was on the board of Siri. So this is something NRDC has encouraged people to do. Uh, my colleague, David Goldstein, started IMT, you know, starts the new building institute. You know, we basically try to have our hands in because we think that's what's necessary to bring about the big change we need to have. Uh, and this is what the idea of even, you know, we're going to talk about the hubs and doing building exchanges all over the country. We know, we know that building owners need technical assistance, financing help, handholding, policies are going to be critical to drive some of that demand. But unless you do all that handholding and support, you're not going to achieve the outcomes you want. So long answer, but it's, it is, does take that. And institution building is really part of that journey around how you transform markets. Uh, markets transform. You have to have real solutions. You have to have the policy piece. But to change market behavior and people to do the things that need to get done, uh, you need to do what building exchange does. Um, well, it seems to me that it's also been relatively strategic in terms of thinking about what are the building blocks, the actual blocks that are necessary. You know, obviously at BX, we're all about, you know, providing tools and educational resources and neutral information to help building decision makers. Uh, but you've also, uh, I think, been very involved and identified the financing piece side too. And I think you're now on the board of the New York City Energy Efficiency Corporation, which is kind of a sister organization to the Building Energy Exchange. We came about at the same time. Uh, out of the same, you know, mayor's office of long-term planning. Uh, and, um, you know, I think it'd be interesting to hear you to say a little bit about uh, the role of some of these different building blocks and maybe what, what's still anemic or what's missing. Where are some of the kind of blocks that we need to, to be working on? Right now, it's all about scale and acceleration. So the question is really that even as we do the policy and the demand and, you know, the financing piece is so critical, but the challenge still is to get people to take the financing, right? And do the deals. There's no shortage of money out there to finance projects. The question is, who does the handholding and how do you do the deal flows? And whether it's PACE or whether it's NYSEEC or whether it's any other type of financing, 
The key is gonna be the demand generation. And this is where the policy piece helps, but this is where there's also a huge opportunity, I believe in the coming year in Washington with the new administration for the Fannie Mae's of the world to send a very clear signal about what they expect when they buy back the loans that all the lenders provide. And so if we could build in some energy efficiency requirements, which will require labeling and handholding and all the other things. So this is all about how do you get the markets to really perform the way they should, but they don't. And so I think the next big piece is really to speak to the real estate industry through their lenders who demand some of the changes as well that we would like to see, because it's in the economic interest of those lenders to mitigate potential risk and lower operating costs, which improves their value of the buildings. So we need to kind of, that was always kind of like where we needed to go, but everything we do at the local and state level is kind of hopefully creating the momentum because in order to get those policies, you have to be able to show that it can be done. You can't go and ask for something and can't point to where it's happening, what's being done, and the fact that it has got you know real potential. So part of the policy piece that we've learned over the years is unless the market 10, 20% market share is there, you're not going to get a requirement. Getting requirements too early without having enough market share makes it very hard to you know actually get those policies in place, much less implement them. So that long way of saying... The pieces we know, the question is, how do we scale mm-hmm. and how do we take all the things we're doing and everything you do? And, you know, I'm sure you could do 10 times as much in terms of what the market needs out there. And the question is, how do we scale? Yeah. Well, I would like to build on that a little bit because, you know, we're 21 days now into the Biden-Harris administration. And it finally, you know, feels like there's real possibility of federal movement again on climate change. Um, you know, and they're 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 building a pretty impressive team over there. Some Obama alums, you know, Gina McCarthy has gone back the, after uh, her stint at NRDC, um, leading on the policy side, and even just just recently, you know, New York City's own director of sustainability, Mark Chambers, uh, just yesterday I think started his new job in the White House uh, Council on uh, Environmental Quality as a senior director of buildings emissions. I mean, that's. Has, has there ever been a title of buildings down there? Um, but, you know, looking uh, at the new kind of possibility here, what are the two or three things that you'd love to see the administration get done and that, that are kind of tangibly possible? Yeah, I mean, that's, politics are so complicated, so it's hard to know what can get done uh, in the Senate, especially. So what's going to be done through reconciliation and budget? So without getting into all the weeds, so, so there'll be an opportunity to certainly do things through administrative actions. So the things that Treasury and HUD and Defense Department and Ag Department will all be able to do with existing authorities. So I think that's where you can get the most change. If we need to be very smart and strategic about what these department and agencies can do within their existing authority. Uh, I think in terms of a potential infrastructure bill, there can be a lot of money that goes to cities and states. Mm-hmm. Just like era funding uh, under Obama that helped create NYSEQ, mm-hmm. uh, we could get a lot more funding through some sort of a green or infrastructure bank to do similar things all over the country. 
So there's potential through money going for the things we want, helping uh, you know, create some of that change as well. Obviously, the big policies on regulating carbon emissions uh, in the power sector will depend on just you know, what is doable in Congress versus what can be done by EPA. Transportation policies, certainly fuel economy standards, electric vehicle tax credits. So anything that has a budgetary implication can be done through reconciliation and potentially, you know, move with 50 votes. Uh, and, you know, so there are a lot of ideas around what can be done through that process. Uh, I'm especially focused on things related to storage for renewables, because as we scale up renewables, we know we need to deal with the storage battery issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also need to deal with transmission issues. And so transmission and storage are very high priorities for me these days in terms of how to really uh, let renewables scale up the way they need to. And that can also be done through infrastructure or, or reconciliation bills because they're providing financial support for development of those technologies. If you look back to the last 20 years, I mean, the role of PTC and ITC for wind and solar can't be underestimated. How, they, how they, you have to explain those things to people. Production tax credit and investment tax credit were basically tax policy that encouraged investments in wind and solar. By private sector folks? Or? Yes, yes. It was, the tax credit was private. The public sector makes those investments. And mm-hmm. uh, that's how policy has, I mean, that's what caused wind and solar to decline in cost by 90% over the last 20 years. And battery costs have been coming down. LED costs have been coming down. So there are a lot of things that can be done through in, uh, tax investment decision-making that Washington can do more than even just the policies we normally think of that we also need. But the power of the purse and the power of tax policy is, is easier to do, in my view. Nothing is easy, but easier in terms of encouraging the type of solutions we want. It's like the... At a individual level, it's like the tax credit for buying an electric vehicle, essentially, um, to spur that marketplace. Yep. Shifting to the Midwest, <laughs> um, you know, I think you've gone from probably one of the bluest states <laughs> and regions in terms of progressive policies and initiatives uh, to certainly a much more conservative context. Um in Kansas City. And I guess, first of all, why Kansas City? Um, and then a little bit, uh, it'd be great to have a little discussion about what's happening there and giving us some insight into what's happening there in the energy and the efficiency space. Well, why Kansas City is because my wife's hometown, this is what moved into the house she grew up in. She's a <laughs> multi-generation Kansan. And I've been visiting here for 40 years because that's how long ago I met Jan. So this is a uh, was always a second home, and we decided at some point after 34 years of being in New York City uh, in the West Village that uh, we were going to move here, and NRDC was nice enough to let me keep my job. So it was kind of worked <laughs> out nicely, and we needed to do the work at, you know, in the Midwest and in the heartland, and uh, taking on the challenge of Kansas and Missouri was exactly the right thing for me to do when we moved here. So, you know, Definitely doing the work at the city level. I mean, the, in these red states, the cities are blue. So working in Kansas City and St. Louis, you know, we can work on the similar type of policies. So, you know, they were both city energy project cities. So we started working on benchmarking and other 
strategies. St. Louis has passed the building performance standard, which is the first city in the Midwest and only the third or fourth city in the country to pass efficiency requirements for existing buildings. So you can do this work in the cities. The challenge is, of course, to find supportive policies at the state level. And this is back to the theory of change, which is you have to offer up solutions that people can say yes to in the red, even in the red state. So when I go to the legislature in Kansas and Missouri, which is super majority Republican, I have to bring solutions to them rather than problems. I can't bring them things they're going to say no to. So I have to bring them things they can say yes to, which means I have to do all the work with the key stakeholders, whether it's the utilities, large customers, other advocates, and come up with the outcome that, you know, solution, policy solution that they can get behind. And the most technical one of those right now I'm working on is called securitization. It's a way to figure out how to retire older coal plants and replace them with renewables and efficiency. Uh, renewables and efficiency are, of course, cheaper than some of these older coal plants, but utilities being regulated still haven't fully depreciated them. So they want to recover those costs to those coal plants and not retire them. So you have to deal with their stranded cost issues and other details. So the legislation ends up being 30 pages of really complex stuff that nobody's going to really read or understand. And the only way to get it passed, is, and if, to be persistent, we're working on it for the fourth year this year, we think we can get it done. But there's just an example. You have to do the hard work, come up with the right solutions that nobody opposes, and that's how you get things done. And at the city level, it's you know back to creating the infrastructure. Uh, if we're going to get a policy like St. Louis is in place, we're not going to get compliance because of penalties. We're going to get compliance if we can help the building owners achieve the standards. Right. So standing up a building hub there, and the idea will be because there are smaller cities here, we're not going to create a separate building, expand it a separate NYSEC and an Elevate Energy. We're going to try to bring the best ideas we know that work elsewhere and combine them into one organization. So both in St. Louis and Kansas City, we're in the process of launching these building energy hubs. We could even call the Kansas City one Building Energy Exchange because it's such a great name. And so that's been fun for me to take some of the experience from what we all have done in New York. And you know, it needs to be customized. It needs to be for Kansas City and St. Louis. But that's what we're able to do at the city level. And the other thing is working regionally at the city level because we're by state in Kansas City and with Kansas and Missouri. So we're trying to work with at the county level and regional level rather than just Kansas City, Missouri, which is half a million. But if you do it regionally, it's over two million more impact. And so that's the other thing we've added to our work here is to do things on a more regional basis. And same with St. Louis, we're doing it at the county level rather than just the city level. But these are all works in progress, and it's fun to do. I love what I do. So uh, that's kind of been in the area of both cities work and state work, uh, build the relationships, come up with the solutions, and that's the plan. So, I mean, I think about the the work you did in, in um, you know, New York when you were working more closely uh helping stand up the building energy exchange, there was a real engagement of the private sector in having them be part of solving the problem um, instead of an adversarial position. 
you know, where kind of pointing to them as the problem. Uh, and, you know, it seemed like that has its upsides and downsides in, in some ways, but ultimately, you know, if it's, it may get you further um, and it may get some of these policies to actually, you know, or new laws to be achievable um, more specifically, but it seems like that's been a hallmark of, of your kind of process. Um, is that environment still the same in, in Kansas City and Missouri in terms of engaging the private sector and the public sector simultaneously? Yeah, I mean, it's especially necessary here because again, if you can't come up with a solution that nobody opposes, you're not gonna get it done. So you have to do all the hard work of negotiating and getting different parties to agree before you actually take it to the city council or take it to the state legislature. So on the example of securitization, I mean, I have to get the utilities on board, the largest customers, because politically, at least in Kansas and Missouri at the state level, the two players that have the most clout are the utilities and the large customers, the industrial customers. So they're the ones who you have to kind of get to agreement with. At the local level, it's the building owners, right? And other trade unions and so on. So you have to work with all of them and fashion something that can get done, both passed politically, but also can be implemented as well. So yeah, you have to do the hard work, uh, better to hand elected officials a solution rather than a problem. And even if you think you can get the solution implemented without others, it's always better if you can. Uh, and I think it's, you know, here it's, you don't have an option at the state level. At the local level, you could probably push certain things through, but then you're going to still need folks in the implementation phase. So the better your relationships are, the easier it's going to be to both pass the policy and to implement it. You know, I, I always say when we've been having these conversations about how, you know, the bunch of the resources we've created in New York are very applicable to, you know, other cities and other regions. And we're having these discussions about creating these partnerships where we can kind of provide some of those resources to the Kansas City Exchange, Building Energy Exchange, St. Louis and other cities. You know, the science, the science doesn't change. Building science doesn't change. Maybe the climate can change. Um, but do you find the needs of the building sector locally are very different um, in terms of, you know, convincing them to do efficiency or getting them interested in engaging in efficiency. I mean, I know there's some really progressive developers there doing some passive house projects and stuff like that, but, yeah. but generally, is it a different environment there? I mean, you know, the issue everybody raises, of course, is the cost of energy, and therefore it is less of that a factor for some. Uh, the other issue that comes up now is if you move more and more to renewable electricity, why do efficiency? That's an argument that you hear everywhere. But here in, in the Kansas area, I mean, basically the wind is so inexpensive that you have to be able to make the case that, you know, energy efficiency will still save you money and also frees up the electricity to be able to be used in the transportation sector because you don't want to be, you know, the idea of doubling the size of the grid or generation to both electrify buildings and transportation does not make economic sense. So I think the arguments for efficiency in terms of cost savings, you know, what it means for the electric grid, jobs, and so on, and especially now with pandemic, uh, basically to rebuild our economy, the idea of fixing up buildings 
there's just a, such a natural economic argument along with the cost savings. So yeah, the arguments are similar. They're obviously players and the exact numbers will differ, but you have to bring all those different reasons for doing this uh, and improving the comfort and health of buildings, right? We've always talked about that, especially in the affordable housing space. So you, you, you use all of those same reasons. Uh, to, to your question about our, this one developer, Jonathan Arnold, has built the largest passive design apartment building in the country in downtown Kansas City at 2nd and Delaware. It's just a great example of how people are innovative everywhere and want to figure out how to show the way. And, you know, first of a kind projects are very hard to do. It took them a long time to get across the finish line. Uh, the good news is that Berkshire Hathaway was one of his investors. And he clearly wants to do the next five and the next 10, but uh, doing these buildings, uh, especially when you're doing something that's not typically done is, uh, is, uh, you know, is something people do because of their passion. So you find real leaders like that here as well and leaders on the corporate side. And so, yeah, it's definitely, and we also have a great architect engineering community here. Uh, and so, you know, Bob Berkbile, one of the famous architects from here who helped start the U.S. Green Building Council and the Committee on the Environment at AIA. You know, we have firms like that, BNIM and Burns and McDonald, Black and Beach, big engineering firms. I think you have the talent here to really make this an area where they can actually be a, have a competitive advantage and offer these services so that's another thing we've been able to kind of work with is how can we lead on this? We're also building a new airport right now, and we're trying to get that to be a net zero airport and on and on and on. So a lot of opportunities. Well, we're going to wrap up here in a couple minutes, and um, but I wanted to um, spend maybe the last couple minutes at least talking a little bit about um, the kind of footprint that you've left uh, or that you've created um, through just an incredible amount of mentoring that you've done. And it was really interesting to hear at the beginning of this conversation, you know, your seven years was it teaching um, in high schools and uh, that now I can see like a lot more connections between that, but it seems like you've spent an incredible amount of uh, time um, and effort helping people in their careers, pushing them, you know, into places, uh, kind of stepping back and pushing um, the next generation forward uh, and supporting them. And I, you know, it'd be interesting to hear you talk a little bit about, um, you know, that as, as kind of the part of your secret strategy to change, <laughs> change the climate crisis in the United States. <laughs> well, well, it's first, some of it's selfish. I mean, part of it's like you only can do so many things and you're only good at so many things and to surround yourself with other smarter, better people and, bring them along is kind of, to me, the only way to get things done and the only way to actually survive doing this work. So to me, I've always uh, thought that I needed the help to do all the things that I knew I didn't have the skill sets for. So you surround yourself with really good people and you don't micromanage them. You let them be creative and you support them and you build a big team. And you know, over the years, then, you know, you can look back and say, you know, even in my teaching, my view is like, if 
you know, you teach hundreds of kids, but if you can have the impact on one or two kids every year, that's significant in my view. And so I think similarly with the work, it's like if you have 50 people out there doing stuff and you were able to help them uh, when they got started, it's just a way to multiply impact, right? It's just logical to me. And like I said, most importantly, it was like, I didn't, I'm not good at lots of different things. And having a team approach was the best way to actually cover for that, <laughs> was to really, you know, hire the best, let them do stuff, support them. They're part of your team. Their success is your success, right? Yeah. People know that. And it still kind of amazes me that people don't then embrace this approach, which is really to, you know, have more impact and have the success of the team be your success in the end. Well, I think, you know, for many of us, it's, it, there's, you know, you have to kind of deal with your own ego in that process. And, it, you know, it's always been amazing to me um, how much policy you've been a very significant player in at the table, yet not necessarily the kind of headline participant. Uh, or and, and I think that speaks volumes to um, this kind of strategic approach in a lot of ways. And it it's about, it, it seems like it's about scale on many different levels. You're talking about scaling efficiency in buildings, but scaling impact through mentorship. And that's part of, it was actually an RDC culture in my view. I mean, if our founder, John Adams, believed in hiring the best people. And it was actually more on the law firm model. People had their portfolio, but you didn't have a top-down structure. And you know, so John and Francis and Peter and you know, on and on, we, our management always wanted us to do the work and get the credit and succeed and didn't really seek the control. And so I think that that kind of became part of the NRDC brand and culture that was kind of, we all kind of accept and work on. And I think, uh, you know, there were always Lone Rangers in RDC, but many of us understand that basically uh, you have to keep uh, growing the movement and bring more and more people into the effort because the problems are too big otherwise to solve. Well, you've been doing an amazing job at, at that, Ashok, and um, that seems like a really good place uh, to stop. I want to thank you so much for the incredible work that you do and for helping create the Building Energy Exchange and uh, and for all of your time. 10 uh, years. <laughs> 10 years. We made it. Congratulations. It's, who thought 10 years ago what would happen? But I'm very happy with where we are. And thank you, Richard, and your team for bringing us to this point. Well, thank you so much. And uh, um, for folks who want to, you can find out about our other upcoming programs um, on our website, be-exchange.org. Anyway, thank you so much for joining us today, and uh, please stay safe out there. Thank you, Ashok. Thank you. Take care.